Welcome to The Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. Welcome to The Female Red Zone. This is Mary Beth Kuzmeski. Today, we're interviewing Dr. Margaret Heffernan. Margaret is an entrepreneur. She's been a chief executive many times. She's the author of five books. Now, I think it's interesting that she was born in Texas. She was raised in Holland and educated at Cambridge. She's produced programs for the BBC. She's produced programs for Intuit, The Learning Company, Standard & Poor's. She's an amazing person. She's written five books. I am so happy to have Dr. Margaret Heffernan with us today. Well, it's great to be with you, Mary Beth. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yes. So I want to start off with a book that you wrote, and I heard you speak Um, And I just thought the research that you had done was just so fabulous. And the book that you were talking about that you wrote was Women on the Top. And so if if you would like to just share with us, I know you interviewed lots of people, but give the audience some of the findings and some of the things that happened um, and you learned as you wrote that book. Sure. Well, I wrote the book, it was my second book, because I came across some extraordinary data when I was writing my first book about the rise of female entrepreneurship. And what that data showed and has continued to show was that women were building or starting new businesses at a faster rate than men, that those businesses got far less in the way of institutional or venture funding but that they tended to be more successful, which is to say they lasted for more than five years, they tended to be more profitable, and they tended to create more jobs. And so I thought, well, this is really interesting. This is a very large number, so it's about approximately 10.5 million businesses that as a cohort are achieving more with less. So it has to be the case that we could learn a lot from this group of really successful companies. And so, as you said, I went around, I interviewed hundreds of women business owners and really tried to extract from that all kinds of lessons about what was it that was making their company so successful. And all sorts of things, you know, came out of that. One was partly to do with their motivation for starting their businesses. Some of it was to do with the kinds of businesses that they went into. Some of it was to do with their sense of timing, their relationship to the market. A lot was to do with the culture that they created within their businesses. And a lot of it was to do with their attitudes to mergers, acquisitions, and finance. So it was a really fascinating research project. And I have to say that, you know, even though the book came out, I've continued to kind of watch that space and continue to be amazed at how incredibly successful female entrepreneurs uh, continue to be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the things you mentioned, which I, I thought very interesting, is why the women started their own businesses in the first place. And, and maybe they were in corporate America and what happened there. Can you talk to that a little bit? Because it's why, why they start that company and sort of leads into how successful they, they are as, as entrepreneurs. That's exactly right. So one of the things that was really interesting as I talked to women about how their companies had started is that to a significant degree, they'd started their companies really out of a sense of rage, that they'd had, you know, by and large, pretty successful corporate careers, 
But they'd reached a point where they just felt that they had been undervalued, overlooked so routinely that they quite often got to a point of thinking, you know, I really, I just don't want to do this anymore. And the other thing often was that they were working in cultures that they felt were very alien and unsupportive. And they were very, very driven to prove that you could run businesses in different ways and still be successful. And so, you know, whether it was this, you know, passion to prove that business could be done differently, or whether it was the rage um, because of being undervalued, I think that kind of real fervor was what got them through what is often the most difficult stage for entrepreneurs, which is what I think of as the sort of, you know, standing on the edge of the swimming pool moment, which is you know you want to, you know once you've jumped in, you will be glad you've done it. But in the meantime, boy, does the water look cold. <laughs> and so that kind of fervor, sometimes the evangelical zeal, sometimes the rage, gets women through that difficult stage and I think leads to this very passionate, very committed, um, very focused um, business creation. Yeah, you know, one of the things you talk about is that it, it, it has been hard for some of those women that started their own companies to have influence within their corporate environment. Do you think that that's, that's right. is it changing? Is that still the case? Um, I always like to think that it's changing, but it doesn't seem like it is. Well, I think it is changing. I think um, for most of us, it's changing way too slowly. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of women think, well, wow, you know, I'm not going to live forever. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not sure with the current race rate of change that I want to wait. So yes, I mean, I'm not entirely pessimistic. I think we have seen quite a bit of change. I think every serious businesswoman I know is extremely frustrated by how slow the change is. I think they're frustrated by the periods of backlash that I think many of us feel we've lived through. And there just comes, a, I think, really quite an existential moment where women feel, you know, it really is now or never time. And I don't want not to have done this um, just because it's hard. What can corporate America and and corporations in general, I guess, do to change the culture to become more, I guess, gender neutral in terms of the the culture? Well, I'm not sure anybody is or can be gender, gender neutral. I think we're all biased in favor of people like ourselves. And I think that one of the reasons that the many and expensive diversity campaigns over the last 20 years have mostly failed is because we sort of thought, well, if we just make the argument, uh, people will understand it and change will occur. You know, that seems perfectly logical. It just turned out not to be true. And I think the reason it's turned out not to be true is partly because I think many men have not really accepted the idea that diversity is a business case. This is not so much about social justice or fairness or discrimination. It's about what makes companies smarter, more sustainable, more profitable, more attractive to talent. And I have to say, I still encounter men at very senior levels in positions of tremendous authority who don't buy that. They don't think it's necessary. They think it's special pleading. They think it's a fad that will go away. And as long as they continue to believe that, 
um, we're going to have trouble making real headway. You know, the diversity campaigns, you know, mostly, like you said, have failed or have not reached any kind of objectives that they've set forth. And there has to be some change in that diversity program. But I love what you're saying about this is a business case. And if that can be proven, then from a logical standpoint, this isn't giving favor to people who are someone in a minority status because we we feel like we should. It's actually good for the business. And I think until that's recognized, maybe we'll still have these same issues. But the diversity, I, I've always been amazed that every large company, um, I work a lot in the financial services industry, and they all have diversity initiatives. And they've they've all failed. And, and But they check off the box saying that I've got this diversity initiative. Right. And I think there are lots of different reasons for that. I think it's often, and, and this, this is a very painful thing to talk about, it's often because the diversity efforts are themselves run by women. And I didn't really see that that was problematic until I met really one of the most successful diversity champions, I would say, in the world, who is a, you know, a fascinating and deeply impressive individual named Ted Childs. Now, Ted ran diversity for um, IBM, one of the few companies that has a really good track record in this space. And I first met him at a conference about diversity that was held at IBM headquarters. And my first thought when I met him um, was, my goodness, what are you doing here? A, you know, you're a man. What could you possibly know about diversity? And, um, and B, you're an African-American. So I don't quite get it. Well, God bless Ted, you know, because he was patient and explained it absolutely brilliantly, which is, he said, you know, the thing is that if the people championing your group are of that group, then you will never really hear what they truly think and what they're saying in private. So you will never really get their trust and their ear. And the thing that Ted did um, when he ran diversity for IBM is he said, I will champion any group that is not my own. And the effect of that, of course, was sensational because what people did know was that when Ted talked about discrimination, he really knew what he was talking about. But he wasn't talking on behalf of himself. He was talking on behalf of others. And so when he made the, case, the business case, which he did eloquently and often, people believed him and they really paid attention. And I think one of the things that we as women have to accept is that we need allies. We need to champion others who are discriminated against and we need others to champion us when we are discriminated against. And I really think it is only through those kinds of alliances that we will finally start to gain momentum. I think that is so genius about having a man sort of run the diversity program so that, and it is a difficult conversation because as women, we know what we need. We feel like we know what we need, but in order for the initiative to work, you've got to have the ears of everyone. That's right. And you need to have conversations where people don't think, well, you're just saying this because it would be good for you or just good for your group. They have to understand that the argument you're making is fundamentally a business argument and that that's why you're there and it's why you're devoting your time and professional attention to it. 
And I think if you don't get that degree of trust, it's very hard to be taken as seriously as you need to be taken to create real change. Yeah, it it uh, it makes a lot. And it's of sense. tricky, you know, because you know the world is full of um, HR executives who are female trying to make this case, and they're doing so because they believe in it. They're doing so with a high degree of professionalism and serious intent. But I think we have to look at the results and say maybe there's something else here that's needed. So I think you know I think they should continue to do what they're doing. But not on behalf of women, you know, on behalf of other groups, whether it's different sexual orientations, whether it's, um, you know, different populations like the disabled population, whether it's the transgender population, whatever it may be, whether it's the African American population. But I think we have to start working for each other instead of just working for ourselves. Absolutely. Um, so smart. You know, something else to, to switch gears just a touch, something else that you, uh, I believe, found in the book Women on the Top is the less you have, the more you do for others. Can you talk yeah. about that? Because that, you know, it, it sounds, well, really? But of course. Well, I mean, this is a kind of recurrent theme through all of my books, which I only kind of realized after the fact. I mean, it's the heart of my book called The Bigger Prize, and it's the heart of my little tiny TED book called Beyond Measure, which is those who have little recognize that they will get nowhere without alliances, and that the way that you build alliances is to help other people. And so what I think is really interesting is that through history, women have had less, and therefore they have had to become very good at building alliances. And particularly once the world became networked, this became a phenomenal skill and, um, and a gigantic competitive advantage. So I think there's much in, if you like, the sort of deficit of our history that now more than ever really works in our favor. I think that as the world moves from a much more, um, from a, if you like, a, a competitive mindset to a collaborative mindset, the fact that in history women have always been collaborative maybe go a very long way towards explaining why it is that with less, our businesses are nevertheless more successful. Yeah, very interesting and insightful. Now, you mentioned your book, Beyond Measure. Talk about that book a little bit, because it's about small changes that we can make uh, to have big impact. Yeah. Well, so in a way, you know, this is a classic case of a, of a great collaboration, which is TED, you know, I've done two TED Talks, decided that they wanted to publish a series of small, short books that could be read in one sitting. And for reasons best known to themselves, they decided they really wanted a business book in the series, and somehow... They thought that I was just the person to write it. And it's quite interesting because I wasn't at all convinced, but I sort of thought, well, they've been good to me, so maybe I should take this idea seriously. And one of the things I felt was that organizations have routinely tied themselves up in gigantic, you know, multi-year programs, change programs and the like. And that they had hoped to kind of try to change everything overnight. And that these were very daunting. They were very 
expensive, and there was very little um, evidence that they had achieved the kind of huge change that they had hoped for. And so I became very interested instead in what are the sort of small, often symbolic things that you can do in yourself and in your organization that might have a disproportional impact. Because I felt, among other things, that if we are really seriously going to change our organizations, that we need that change not to be in the hands of just a few people, but to be in the hands of the many and to empower everyone in an organization rather than just a few. And so that's, re that's really the gist of the book, is what is it that I could do tomorrow in my company that might change some aspect of what it can do and how it behaves. And that was also very much looking at this really fundamental transition that all the companies that I work with, large and small, are going through which is trying to get their very talented people to collaborate with each other instead of competing with each other. So what are the, some of the small steps that, that can be made inside of an organization to have big impact? Well, so one of the central ideas in the book is that for people to collaborate, you need high levels of trust, generosity, reciprocity, um, of, of kind of behavior which sociologists describe as having high levels of social capital. Now, one of the things that I learned, I think, by writing Women on Top was essentially, I would argue, that social capital, those relationships of trust, generosity, and reciprocity, routinely outperform financial capital. In other words, if you have a large number of people who help you and trust you, that can be much more powerful than having a large bank balance. So that suggests that one of the things we could and should all do is build that social capital. Now, how do we do that? Well, many of us do it, I think, instinctively, but I think if you're in a company where that isn't happening naturally, and in fact, in one of the many, many companies where there are all sorts of procedures that work against it. It's something you can do yourself by deciding, okay, actually, I do want to know more about the people that I work with. I want to be curious. I want to build relationships of trust, generosity, and reciprocity with them because when I do that, I have access to a knowledge network which is richer and more diverse that makes me more intelligent because I know what I've learned from all the people around me. It means I'm in the, if you like, the traffic flow of great ideas, so I'm more creative, I can make a better contribution, and I can set a tone to the work that I do that is more generous and collaborative, which then strangely often changes the way that everybody works because they can see a more effective way of working together and innovating. It makes a lot of sense. I, I love what you said about the traffic flow of great ideas. We want to be in that traffic flow of great ideas. Right. And, and the way to be in that traffic flow, and again, you know, women historically have always done this very well, because if you don't have access to institutional power, then you become very good at having access to social power, which I think is what women traditionally have done. But that means you really have to know people. 
This is not about the sort of networking which is speed dating and collecting an awful lot of business cards. This is really knowing people, knowing a diverse bunch of people, having a lot of very different kinds of networks so that you have access to a very broad diversity of thinking. So it's actually applying to your own life the arguments around diversity that we always use to advance the cause of women. Now, in your career, what's been maybe something that's really surprised you about? I mean, because you've done lots and lots of things and produced lots of multimedia and, and been CEO and all of this, but what's the most surprising thing maybe that happened in your career? Oh, golly, lots of, lots of surprises <laughs> for sure. But I think one of the things that's really struck me is um, when I look back on some of my achievements, I recognize that my richest opportunities came to me from people who were junior to myself. And I think this is really interesting because, you know, coming back to what we were saying about networking, I certainly observe in many people that I talk to and some people that I work with that they have what I think of as an overly tactical attitude to networking, which is it's only worth my time talking to people who are deep, very powerful because they're the only people who can help me. In other words, I'm not really interested in people as people. I'm interested in people as tools to help me in my, advance my own career. So this is a typically you know, very self-centered, very ungenerous attitude to other people. And I think I'm really struck to discover that in my own career, as I say, all of my best opportunities, all of the most exciting things that I've had to do have come to me from people that if I had treated them tactically, I probably wouldn't have spent any time with. And it's really taught me, you know, that when you meet people, be there. Think about how you can help them, not the other way around. Really understand who they are. What's their story? What do they care about? What, what is it in them that is different from you? Because that's the part you can learn from, not the stuff that's the same. And so I think it's made me understand that, you know, some of this is entirely by accident, having lived in lots of different places and worked in lots of different places. But, you know, take the people that you encounter very seriously and don't try to judge their networking point. Get to know them and understand them and you will be amazed at how several years later in some very random chaotic way the help you gave to them will come back to you. Yeah, it's like not looking for the power brokers but just treating people like people and developing a Well, the problem about power brokers is that they're usually pretty selfish and so they're usually a poor investment of time. In addition, I think um, I've never really met anybody who really was great at predicting who was going to be fantastically important and powerful to them. So I'd say stop trying to second guess the people you need and start instead spending the effort trying to understand who they are and what's different from them, which is the stuff that they could teach you about. Yep, who they are and what they can teach you. I love that. Now, I know that you wrote a book called Willful Blindness. What's Willful Blindness? Yeah. 
Um, willful blindness is a is a legal concept. I encountered it uh, reading the transcript of the trial of chairman and CEO of Enron. And the legal concept says that if there are things that you could know and should know and somehow manage not to know, um, the law deems that your ignorance has been a choice and uh, the law must treat you as if you had had that knowledge because you had chosen not to have it. And when I read that, really, a chill went down my spine because I thought, wow, I'm sure there were moments running my businesses where there were things I could have known and should have known and somehow managed not to know. And at the time, of course, all the banks were collapsing and everybody was saying, oh, my goodness, it's a black swan event we could never have known. And I thought, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> because so many people were writing about it for years in advance of it occurring. And so and I started to think a lot about examples of willful blindness in history uh, in the Catholic Church, say in Boston, in Ireland, in the Third Reich, in all sorts of personal cases of adultery, child abuse, and so on. And I thought, wow, this is really pretty pervasive, this behavior in which we know there is something that we should be thinking about, and we choose to ignore it. So I really set off in the book to try to understand how does this behavior develop, why do we do it when it's obviously very dangerous for us, and how might we do better, how could we see better. And I mean it was a very seminal book for me because it was the first book that brought me really mainstream attention, the Financial Times described it as one of the most influential business books of the decade. Um, it was a finalist for their big prize, and I think it also, you know, and it also got me out of what I had come to understand, sadly, was a female ghetto, which is that if you write about women, um, nobody really thinks that what you're saying matters to anybody except women. Hmm. Strangely enough, they don't think that about men. They think that whatever is about men is universally true, <laughs> but anything that is true about women is, is meaningful and important only for women. So what was great about willful blindness, apart from the fact that I think it remains a very powerful thesis, was that it got much more mainstream attention to my work as a whole, which, of course, strangely enough, ended up bringing more attention to the work I'd done around women and diversity. So yeah, so it's a win. It's a win-win, absolutely. And yeah, I I find it fascinating. Now, what's next for you? So you've done so many things, but what are you thinking about doing next? Well, I'm thinking of writing a very different kind of book next. Um, I read a lot of business books. Um, I have to say, I find them pretty depressing. Mm -hmm. I think most of them are written kind of like cookbooks. You know, if you do the following three things, then you too will be immensely successful in everything you ever do. <laughs> and I find them depressing because um, I think it's rarely that simple. And also, I don't think, this is, this is very countercultural at the moment, I don't think making things simple necessarily makes them better. I think it often makes them um, less meaningful. And uh, it kind of takes all the human delight out of them. So I'm trying to think about how do we write about the things that we care about in business in a way that's more human and um, if you like less mechanical because if it is true 
that a huge amount of human labor is going to be done by machines, then we really need to think about what is the unique contribution that humans bring to work and how do we develop that. And um, as I said, it's very countercultural. Everybody seems to be getting very excited by the new machine age. I'm very interested in human side of business, which has always, for me, been the most rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it sounds like it's going to be great. And um, I will read that like I have all of the other books that you've written. Now, how can people reach you? Uh, well, I have a website, which is just www.mheffernan.com. Um, and every, you know, all the blog posts that I write are on there, all my TED Talks are on there, and all my contact information is on there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the Female Red Zone. And by the way, we are getting men to listen to this show. And um, I think it's Well, wonderful. I think that's fantastic because I do think, you know, that women won't succeed without helping men. And I also think, and I hear this from a lot of my correspondents who are male, that this, many of the changes in the workplace that women want and have fought for hugely benefit men. And so I think there is a real coalition of interest here, but we need to be a lot more energetic in pursuing it. Yeah, absolutely, and very collaborative. So thank you yeah. so much for, for being on the Female Red Zone. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for your interest in my work, and um, good luck to all of your, your listeners, male and female. Thank you. And from the Female Red Zone, this is Mary Beth Kosmeski. Thanks for listening to The Female Red Zone, a podcast dedicated to sharing insights from women who have made an indelible mark in business and the path they took to soar. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>